Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. And I I love this test. If there were a group of 100 people who were going to read this, and I stood at the door as they walked out and said, what did you take away from it? What is the one thing I hope they would say? Once I've got that one thing, is there a way for me to put that in a visual form? Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. I'm joined today by Carl Richards of Behavior Gap. Carl, welcome to the show. Geraldine, really excited to chat with you. This should be fun. Yes, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So before we get started, for anyone who hasn't heard of you, can you give folks just a quick background on who you are and how you got here. Yeah, for sure. I'll try to keep it quick. I was a financial advisor a long, long time ago. I got a degree in finance kind of by accident. My my wife suggested it one day. I went while I was in school to apply for a job that I thought in the ad, I thought it said security guard, you know? So I was like, this would be a great nighttime job because I can still go to school full time. Um, I Halfway through the interview, I figured out it wasn't about Kung Fu or Jiu Jitsu. It was um, stocks and bonds. It was, the ad said securities. So I got into the whole financial planning industry quite by accident. Um, but like three months into it, I had this experience where it was right out, it was right during, uh, it was when Netscape went public. And for those of you back then remember, it was like the markets were crazy and everybody was excited. And, and I remember being kind of struck by that, like, wait, this isn't about money. So I got into the industry by accident. I stayed because of that, this this strange behavior we have around money. So that's how I got in the industry. And then probably like two or three, it was probably like three or four years later, I was sitting across from some clients, helping them make a really important decision. I'd got my CFP by that point and was trying to help clients make a really important decision. I was just getting blank stares. And these were smart clients. And so I was like, gosh, it must be me, right? I I thought I was good at explaining things, but I was trying to explain it as simply as possible. I was just getting these blank stares. And out of an act of total desperation, and I'd never done this before. I'm not like a doodler. I'd never gone to art classes would be obvious by anybody who's seen my work. But I, I stood up and was like, no, like this on the whiteboard. And it was like a circle and an arrow and a square or something. And the clients were like, oh, I get it now. So that moment was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I started doing that more often. That's all I've ever done is like, I try to do more of the stuff that seems to work and less of the stuff that doesn't. And I started doing that in public on a little website called behaviorgap.com. And for years, it was just my mom and my sister who would read it. I found out later my sister was lying. So it was like, really, it was just my mom. And then randomly, and this is sort of, I think, hopefully will be useful to your listeners, like just playing in traffic, you know, like trying things, doing things. We never know what's going to happen because randomly somebody else forwarded the one of the posts to the editor of the Your Money section in New York Times, Ron, Ron Lieber, who I think is, to me, is the best personal finance journalist out there. And Ron sent an email that I've kept. I show it at keynotes because nobody believes me. <laughs> it says, uh, hey, I love this. Would you do it for us? I was like, I knew enough from my security guard background to say yes and figure things out later. So I was like, of course. That started a weekly column with the New York Times for 10 years. And that led to some books. And eventually, I had to make a choice between continuing to run my financial planning practice 
and doing this stuff, whatever this stuff means, but sort of this like public work. And I chose to do the public work. So that's, that's been the last 25 years. Okay, it's been 25 years. So that was 25 years. How long has the sketch guy run for? The sketch guy ran for 10 years, Okay. every week for 10 years. Okay. And that just, we just stopped um, that a year and a half ago. And you no longer have, you sold the certified financial planning business, right? Sold that business in a long, actually 2012, so 10 years ago. The reason that I wanted to have you on is because you come from a financial money background. You said at the outset there that you were curious about human behavior when it comes to money. And then you kind of, you were playing in traffic, found this other thing and went in a very different direction, but still related to your expertise. And I wanted to unpack that piece because there's so much good stuff in there. So can you tell listeners what you're working on now that you have a bank of sketches what you're working on now and how you've sort of repackaged them. Like, where is your business now with the sketch guy and the sketches? One thing that's helpful for me is just to sort of like, anytime you're doing knowledge work, right? Getting paid for advice that you're giving. And it almost doesn't matter how you're getting paid early on, but like, let's just use an hourly model, right? Like I, it's, and, and anytime you've been doing that for a long time, it becomes second nature. Now, you may have even gotten into the specific industry, you know, being an accountant, being a financial advisor, like whatever it is, law, because you had a natural proclivity to it, like it may have come easy, but even if it didn't, like over time, it got easy because you've been doing it for so long. And the, when that happens, there's a really interesting, and I've seen this over and over and over. I had this, I've had this conversation with a bunch of CPAs actually and attorneys where they say, I don't know what I would say, right? I don't have anything valuable to talk about. I don't have anything valuable to package. And the reason you think that, that's a hallmark of the one, one strain of the imposter syndrome, which is this thing has become easy for me. Therefore, it must be easy for everyone else. And if it's easy for everybody else, it must be of no value, right? And I, I think it's important to just start there with the idea of like, that is not true, right? Like the work that a, an attorney does or the work that a financial planner does, the work that a CPA, the work that my, the guy at my house right now doing plumbing, who's like, oh no, you just do this. I'm like, brother, I have no <laughs> yeah, idea no. what you're even saying. We, it's super valuable. So we started, I started just, and, and I had no plan. I just want to make this super obvious. It was, just, there was no grand scheme. I would have never planned to write for the New York Times or publish two books with Penguin. I, like, I would have never thought that. I was just interested in a problem and trying to solve that problem. And I decided to, to be interested in it in public. And then as I did my research to solve it, I did that research in public. Oh, interesting. I had this conversation with so-and-so and this is what I learned, like just in public. I just got out of a meeting with a client and they asked me about, you know, whatever, diversification. And this is how I explained it. So just in public. And I decided to fire myself as the arbiter of quality. Like, it's not my job to decide if this is valuable. I'm just going to do it. So then, I'm trying to answer your question now. Like, then we started having this kind of catalog of material. And it didn't happen overnight, but I woke up one day and actually, maybe this would be helpful. I got a call. This is very similar to the Times thing. Like, I, it's luck. Like, I got a call from Pen, the, one of the senior editors at Portfolio, the business imprint at Penguin, who on a Friday afternoon, I remember where I was, and they said, Carl, I've read all of your columns. I've organized them in chapters. I'm calling to see if you would write a book with us. And I was, I, again, I knew enough from my security. Like, yeah, of course. But what, what did we do? We sat down as it, I got... To the people that work with me, and at that point, it was just one person. I literally remember the room we were like in my basement. We printed out all the things we'd written with the sketches and we taped them to the wall. And then we just moved them around. And then we said, Oh, that's the book. And then, of course, we went through editing and, you know, proofing and tying things together and narrative arc and all that stuff. My point is, there was this pile of intellectual property. And, and once there was the pile, there's all sorts of things you can do with the pile. The artifact to me is not the thing to get hung up on. 
In the old days, the artifact would have been just a book. Now there's all sorts of options on Earth. I don't get hung up on the artifact. I just like, look, there's this pile of intellectual property now. And so it all starts with believing Geraldine and people like me who say, it's in your head, it's actually really valuable, we just need to create it as intellectual property in a way that we can see it. So now, and this, uh, sorry for being so long-winded, but now we just did a project the last three years where we cataloged. So we have an Airtable database and it's got like one, one tab is words, one tab is sketches, one tab is video, one tab is audio. Everything I've ever said is cataloged in there. There's 8,000 points of data in this database. So now, to answer you, like the projects we do now, we're like, oh, what's an interesting problem? Oh, what have we said about that? Go into the database. Find, oh, you said this. That could be a whole chapter. Talk to us more about that. Like that's kind of how we do things now. So we just think like, what's an interesting artifact that we want to put into the world? Great. The team has said, Carl, you should stop creating content. We have enough for 20 years. Like just stop. But I can't. So that, that's kind of how the business runs now. So I want to come back to the artifact and how you're positioning it, how you're pricing it. You mentioned in there you got curious about this problem. And I think the problem is how to help smart people understand complex, complicated concepts in the financial planning world that they currently don't. And basically solving the blank stairs problem. Would you say that that is it? And that's what you got curious about is like, how do I convey this material in a way that an everyday smart person can understand? Because right now they don't. Yeah. Helping smart people make better decisions and really like even more aligned decisions with money. Yeah. I think the idea of taking something complex and simplifying it for sure in the finance realm. And the reason that I want to dig into this is because I suspect that clients of my listeners give my listeners blank stares, or they have a very good game face that doesn't look like a blank stare, but behind it, it's a blank stare. And I'm imagining, so I sat in on a training yesterday with six CPAs and an expert in the real estate space. And <laughs> I'm a smart person. I understood exactly none of it. Yeah, right. I suspect that there are plenty of business owning clients who would benefit from a better understanding and grasp of certain concepts so they can make better decisions. But they are currently unable to understand these concepts because many CPAs don't, you know, draw, pulling out a cocktail napkin and a Sharpie or a piece of cardstock, which I was disappointed to find out that it was cardstock and not napkins, <laughs> is probably not something that they would consider an official or professional way of doing things. Right. What would you say to listeners who are like, yeah, I need a way to convey concepts better to my clients. They need to understand these things. They don't need to understand the tax code, but they need to get the general gist of the concept. How do I even begin to draw it in a simple way that doesn't either oversimplify it or make me look foolish? Yeah. So can we, I, I just want to unpack a little bit like the, the idea of oversimplifying and the fear because mm -hmm. there's a lot of that. And I dealt with, I'm still dealing with it. Like I get emails all the time warning me. Like I remember early, like, oh, these warning emails of like this place that was called too simple where like monsters lived. And if I went there, I, my career would end and I would be eaten. And I always kind of thought initially I was like, damn that that sounds kind of fun. Like, I wonder what's going on over in that place called Too Simple. So I would like find guidebooks and go there. And when I would get there, I would find the water was fine. Like there was no, like I, nobody came after me from, I mean, you should see one of the images it says, and this is the one I get a lot from like, you know, CPAs, accountants, Chief in fact, the chief financial officer of a publicly traded company that you would all recognize if I mentioned the name. I ran into him at a cocktail, at, a, at a, par a barbecue here where I live in Park City, Utah. The company's not based here. And um, he said, I know you're, I've, like, I've run into your work. And I was like, oh, no. Um, I, I was like, can you wait a second? Let me get my kids here. Say it louder. <laughs> but then, I, then and it was, he's like, you, you know what my favorite sketch is? CFO of a, you would, you're probably all using their product right now. Income greater than or equals to sign expenses. That's the sketch in the New York Times. That's his favorite one. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I've been saying it for 20 years. But now that it's printed and hanging on my wall, everybody understands. 
So that was the first, like that, I remember when I sent that in to the Times, it was a huge imposter syndrome moment for me. I was just like, I got nothing this week. This is ridiculous. I don't, this is surely going to get, this is surely going to be the end of the sketch guy column. Because I'm going to get the email that says, this is too simple. But I was like, I got nothing. Sent it in. The editors loved it. The feedback was amazing. And the CFO of this public trade company was like, this is my favorite one. So... I think there's a big fear, and the fear comes two places. I think your audience, it comes from the well-intentioned place. But broadly speaking, there's another place it comes from, which is we use like complexity as a selling tool. We, it's the old, like, I dig a pit, throw the client into it, I look down and say, I'm the only one with a rope. Yeah. It's either that, which I imagine your audience doesn't fit in that category, but let's just say it's either that or it's we... We think it's a sign of intellectual, our intellectual prowess. Or third, we think it's what people are paying for. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just beg you to believe me. Like, I've, nobody cares about your solutions. They care about their problems. And when you understand the difference between that, you can understand, like, if I can deliver, if I can understand the problem clearly and demonstrate that. And I can tell you right now, I could, if we have time, I'll tell you a story about my wife and I going to meet with our CPA. If I can understand that I understand their situation clearly and what they're trying to accomplish, they don't care. Like when you go to the doctor, you can't even read the prescription, right? But you go, I don't want to know about the Krebs cycle. <laughs> yeah, you go fill it. And it, like you sign a waiver at the pharmacy that says if you grow a third arm, you won't sue anyone. You take it home and you give it to your kid. Like if, And you never did a second opinion. You didn't Google the medicine. Don't try it and don't click on images. You didn't do any of those things. You took it. Why? Because you were thoroughly diagnosed. So if the diagnosis is thorough, the solution can be super simple. Now, obviously, if the diagnosis is not thorough, the solution we have to sell and we have to overcome objections. So I always say like, stop selling, stop overcoming objections and start listening. So if we get all that, then we're like, wait, why don't I make it as simple? My second book's called The One Page Financial Plan, right? Like, why can't we make it as simple as possible? So that's the first piece. Now I'll answer your question and that's easier to answer. I'm telling you right now, pulling out a yellow pad, a legal pad and saying like, okay, the money's going to go from here. We're going to pay a little bit of tax here. We'll do this. But if we shift this to here, this income to here, you'll pay this much in tax. And this is the result shows that you have command of the information such that you're going to just draw it. And the only other place I'd point you to is estate attorneys are really good at this. They stop. You don't have to hand draw things. Fine. If that feels like flip flops with a business suit on, fine. Don't do it. Go look at, go look at a good estate attorney. Those flow charts, like they're really good. Boxes, arrows, circles, squares, super simple. And they're trying to explain really complex stuff. So that's one place where I was always like, oh, estate attorneys do this right. Okay. So don't worry about oversimplifying. <laughs> There's no purple monster playing in that pond. N not if, especially not if you've taken the time to diagnose. So let's talk a little bit about that piece, taking the time to diagnose allows you to bypass overcoming objections and spending extra time in sales conversations. So can you unpack, like, because I think the tendency is to hear one pain point from a prospect and to immediately launch into, well, here's how we get started working together. And then, you know, come to find out six months down the line, there's all these other problems that you had, the that the CPA had perhaps avoided not taking the time to understand. So in your experience, What's that process like of taking more time to diagnose properly? It, it, it's just one of my favorite things. I was just taught this last week by Michael Bungay Stainer, who wrote a book called um, The Advice Trap. Just last week, one phrase was so powerful for me. And what else? Right? And, and what he says is just, could you just be curious a little longer? Because <laughs> we, what we want to do, he calls it the advice monster, which I think is great. Like they... Clients mention one thing and we're like, oh, I can help. I'm going to solve this for you. I got advice for you. I know. I know. It is never the first thing. Can I, let me just give you one interesting study that I, I find just terrifying. And I, I think your listeners, if you hear it right, you'll find it terrifying. So it was a state of plant. It was a state. So this was a survey of people who had, who had had really high end estate, um, estate plans. Yeah, estate plans done. 
all the documents, trust, you know, the whole thing. On average, they'd spent more than $10,000 for this. So they valued and were willing to pay for advice, professional advice. They had paid for it and then they didn't implement it. And your audience will know what I'm talking about. Like how many times do you see the client like, oh yeah, I have my trust work done and it's still in joint tenants, all the accounts, whatever. So you're like, they valued and were willing to pay for it. They paid for it and then they didn't implement it. And the question was why? And I can't remember the exact number, but it was 90% plus, and I want to say 96, but whatever, 90% plus said it didn't, it, it, it didn't represent what we wanted. And I was like, how is that possible? Well, I know how it's possible. You didn't ask any more questions. You didn't say, what else would be important? Tell me more about that. It's not that hard. What brought you in today? Oh, interesting. Got it, got it. Tell me more about that. What have you tried? What, what have you seen not work? And then Michael's my favorite. And what else? Right? And what else? And there's another layer of this, which is the seven whys, right? We've, some of us have probably been through that experience. Like, if you just think mentally, like, I need to go three, four, five, seven layers deep, then I'm going to get to a problem. Right? Like, what's the real goal here? What are we trying to do? Is the most important thing that we maximize every single write-off that we can? Is the most important thing that you feel confident and conservative in the advice we've given? Is it that we simplify your lives? How involved do you want to be? You know, like if we can get really clear about what the goal is here and why we're doing the work, then the prescription can be super easy, super simple. Got it. I love it. I think we're just, we're so excited to help. That's, <laughs> Eager. What I th- that's how I think of your audience. Like it's not the, you know, like it's just so excited to help that we just need to be curious a little longer. The advice can come later, it's still important, but just be curious a little longer. Yeah, really trying to understand what it is ultimately at a deeper level that the client is looking for beyond just having the paperwork approved, filed, optimized, and all the rest. This might be a little bit back and in the details, but still I wanna ask you about the process of drawing and simplifying concepts. How many times do you have to draw something with boxes and squares and arrows before it lands? Do you nail it on the first try or do you put it up on the whiteboard and clients are like, eh, not there yet. And you try another version, eh, nope. And then like the third time around, what's that like? That's a super good question. Uh, there's magic that happens the very moment you try. Like it's, it's. Uh, I was always shocked by this. Like I would, these would be a disaster. I wish I had an example. Like I sometimes I have them up on the wall from prior conversations and I haven't taken them down yet, but they're a mess. Like I, I, I don't know if anybody's ever tried like spelling, writing, and talking at the same time. Like I can't spell things, so there's a trick there. You just do the first letter and then some squiggles, right? Like it, they're a mess, and there's arrows, and oh no, not that. Scratch that off, and and I'll I'll do that with a client, like on a legal pad. I had this I had this happen so many times. It's silly. I'd do that on like a legal pad and then we would like make some decisions. We'd move on and and they would reach across at the end and try to take that piece of paper. And I'd be like, hey, why don't I redraw the like where we ended? I can redraw it nice. I could even do it in Keynote if you want me to. So it's and they'd be like, no, 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 I want that one. It becomes a souvenir of the learning experience we had. And I'm only trying to answer your question that way to say like, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if the client doesn't understand, oh, well, maybe I did that, you, you erase it if you're on a dry rate and you try again. But the act, of, the act of trying to simplify things, now let's say you're trying to simplify something without the client in front of you. Let me give you just some sort of tactical ideas around that. Like, I'm going to send out a newsletter. I'm going to, I've written a book. I, I'm going to give a, power, a keynote presentation. This is a huge opportunity in PowerPoint land because we all know PowerPoint's terrible. Like none of us like anybody else's PowerPoint slides. And then we go do the same thing they did with you know 12 point font and 72 bullet points. So one way that I've, I, we, we work really hard to do this, you know, let's, let's just make this simple. You're writing a, your newsletter for a client that's gonna go out every month. At the end of writing that, just the writing itself, one suggestion would be, we literally go through every word and say, could we remove it? And most of the time we'll take it out and then say, did we lose the meaning? So that's the perfection is not achieved when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. So 
often will I'll write and then I'll write an executive summary and I'll delete everything I wrote. And then I'll write a tweet and I'll delete the executive summary, right? Like how tight can we get it? Then the visual to me is like, if I just had, if I had one chance, and I, I love this like test, if there were a group of a hundred people who were gonna read this, and I stood at the door as they walked out and said, what did you take away from it? What is the one thing I hope they would say? And I only get one thing. Once I've got that one thing, is there a way for me to put that in a visual form? Is it a pie chart? Is it a bar chart? Is it a Venn diagram? Is there any way for me to put that in visual form? Then that represents both a shortcut into the idea and a souvenir of the experience afterwards. Because they'll read it and then what will stick, everything else will be in RAM, right? Like and it'll just go away, but what will stick will be the logo, the artifact, the visual. So that, that's, that's some of how I, how I do that. And it just takes work. But once you start doing it a little bit, and you know, the other thing you could do, if you're, if you're like a classic CPA, maybe this just isn't your strength. It's really easy to hire like some creative person and go, hey, help me visualize this, right? So hopefully that's helpful. One more question here on the, the simplifying piece before we go on to the packaging of the sketches. What happens to your client relationships when they go from blank stares to grasping it. That's what got me addicted to it. It was much like, I remember that first meeting, just like, oh, now I get it. There's a, there's a level, if we combine what we talked about earlier with diagnosis, diagnosis and prescription, there's a level of like, uh, this is the first time anyone's actually understood this, understood me, and then been able to explain to me, because what they're used to is the pit. Like they're used to being felt stupid and they they know that they're doing, especially, I, I don't know if this is a, a gender issue, but I've noticed it more among men, the fake, the fake, yeah, 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 totally, totally, totally. And then, and I, I actually think that's probably fair given some of the research we know around overconfidence. Um, so the, but they know that that's a fake thing, like totally, totally, totally. They get out of the car and a spouse or a partner says, do you, uh, no, I didn't understand anything. Nobody likes that. So if you, if it, in terms of what it does for relationships, if you can flip that on its head where A, first, they felt understood for the first time. And second, they understood for the first time. There was mutual understanding. The value no longer becomes about like, whatever, like the prescription, great. Like, I don't, I, I'm going to go take it. I don't even have to think about it because Geraldine told me that's what I was supposed to do. And Geraldine knows me well enough that I can say to Geraldine, given everything you know, what would you do if you were me, right? That's a, that's a really powerful relationship. So let's go over to packaging and selling your sketches. So now you're in your third book, it sounds like. And you have the air table with 8,000 data points. How did you go from that to what I believe you're selling and tell, tell listeners, a book of 52 sketches, 100 copies, and I'll let you tell the rest. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what will be transferable to anybody listening will just be the idea that like, look, there's a lot of ways to do this. We, I like to think of every project I do as an art project. So not only is the end result, the artifact, something I want to be proud of, but the process that we engage in is like, I like the whole thing to be an art project. So two traditionally published books, that was really fun. And, but the problem with traditionally published books, and it's, it's changing a little bit, but not much, to be honest, you know, 224 pages, you know, like it's got to be a thing that fits. And, and anytime you want to be outside of that box, it represents a risk and publishers aren't often willing to take those risks. Um, occasionally they are. But when it's interesting, like Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist is an example of something like that's not supposed to work. And it worked, you know, six by six square. What? So and it, and it, and it worked. And so now if you go say, hey, I want to do something like Austin to a publisher, they will say to you, you're not Austin. And you have to explain to them, neither was Austin before this book worked, right? Like neither was Austin. So you, it's this weird thing. We see this in venture capital. We see this all, all over the place. So, so this project, I was like, hmm, um, what if we kept getting asked, 
would you create a coffee table book? Like that, over the last 10 years, that's been the number one request. Like, would you just create a coffee table book? So people buy this, and it's important to understand this, people buy the digital rights to this to a sketch. It, those are, it's $100. So you go, you get a digital high-res digital download for one sketch. You pay $100, and you get the high-res digital download, and you get a, we call it our do-whatever-you-want license. Essentially means you can do whatever you want other than sell the, the sketch itself. Um, so you, we've had people put it on t-shirts. Somebody in Texas, of course, put it on a billboard. We, you know, people use it in their PowerPoint presentations, their own books, all that stuff. So people pay $100 for that. You've got the rights to use it forever, any way you want. So then people were like, well, can I buy those in bulk? And our answer has always been, no, we didn't. It's just like we have one or two collections that like get you four for the price of three or something. But other than that, we've said no. So we have people buy, you know, 50. We've had people buy and it's just been $100 times 50. And then the coffee table book. And so we're just thinking about this. We're like, oh, interesting. And then I also realized like my favorite writing and I have a lot of imposter syndrome around like James Clear's work or... You know, even like I know, you know, David Baker and and Blair Enns and like Malcolm Gladwell, right? Like these narrative books or these well-researched books or I'm like, ah, I'm much, I finally embraced a couple of years ago that I'm much more like haiku <laughs> than, <laughs> than 224 pages than yeah. writing. Like how clean can we get this idea? So when you combine all that, I was like, well, Gosh, what if we, so then we started the news, we've been doing this weekly newsletter, Behavior Up Weekly Letter for more than 10 years now. And as we write the newsletter now, we're getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and like tighter, just like almost like here's the punchline and we're not going to give you any, and then the sketch. What if we put together a collection of those? So we started working on that. I was like, well, I could take it to the publisher. And I was like, ah, that doesn't sound very fun. So somebody on the team was like, well, what if we just, we were trying to decide what title and Jacqueline, my COO, actually, she was like, what if you just call it volume one? And there's another small little side story. Somebody offered to buy the entire library. Right. Like a private equity firm called and said, do you own the rights to all this? We'll buy it from you. And about the same time, Bob Dylan, not, not, to, not to compare, but Bob Dylan sold his catalog, if you remember that. Yes. And for like $600 million, right? And I was I was like, oh, interesting. Somebody's interested in my catalog. There's an artist that sold their catalog. I'm not in the same ballpark. It doesn't even matter. But the idea of selling the catalog. So I was like, well, what if we just did a small, what if we sliced off a piece of the catalog and sold it? And And so then what we did, the product is a really beautiful book. I think it's really beautiful. It's 52 sketches, 52 essays. Only 100 people were allowed to buy it. Well, sorry, up to 100 people. We ended up selling 35. You had to sell, you had to, you got 100 copies of the book. They were all numbered and signed. I will never number again. Like, that, <laughs> like the signing part was one thing, but eight hours for three days, eight hours a day. In a, yeah, anyway, numbered and signed. You got 100 copies and it was $10,000. But you also got, the same do whatever you want license for all the content in a beautifully designed content library. So you go in all 52 sketches as PowerPoint slides, as keynote slides, as social, as high res, right? Like seven different versions of the slide of this of the sketch and then all the text. And that's really what people I mean when we did the interview afterwards cuz I was like I wonder why people are buying. I thought it was the book. Like oh 100 copies this will be so cool. And people were like, you know, that's cool. But no, like, like, go to a graphic designer and ask them to design 52 like, logos for you that fit your work and see if it's going to be less than 10 grand. It's not, right? So that's, that's what we ended up doing. Super fun. Really scary. Like, I had no idea if it would work. Yeah. And is there a thing that you can't say out loud, but I can, that they're also buying a piece of status, fame, celebrity, like, these are from Carl Richards. You guys, I have to show you this. Look how cool. So that's very nice of you. Yes. And, yes. I'm, and, and so here's, here's, here's what we always say. Like, you don't buy art. You buy the artist. And so I think there's a piece of that. People have, people have introduced themselves at conferences. 
as number 17 out of 33. Like I, I, I've, I've gotten that story. I know who that is. Fire 17. Yeah. She was like, I'm number 17 of the volume one group. So yeah, there is some piece yeah. of that. It's so much more than the, the point that I want to drive home for listeners is that you're, it's so often your buyers are not buying. I mean, right now they might be buying the P&L and the balance sheet, but there are a host of other things that they value that may be opaque to you. So let me just talk about that real quick, um, because I think there are such, and I've thought about this a lot because I've worked with a lot of CPAs. When I was building my business, I had really close partnerships with two or three, and we get to spend a lot of time together. It's funny because I think CPAs don't see themselves this way, but I saw them as way better positioned to do something creative or unique in terms of the pricing model than financial advisors are. And one of the things that I've always wondered about is, and we just don't, you just don't understand how valuable it is. So I had one, one of my friends who decided that he was only going to take on a hundred clients and he thought about every one of the clients. He literally thought of them. He considered himself, he'd never said this out loud to anybody, any clients, but he considered himself internally a venture capitalist. And every single one of the clients was a portfolio company. That's how he thought of it. And behind him on his desk, he had a hundred binders. I was sorry, it's 50, 50 binders. And they were numbered one through 50. And they didn't have the names on it because when clients came in, they didn't want the names on there. But he knew, you know, like your client number one. So anytime you called, if client number one called, he would just grab client number one's binder and start taking notes. And what fascinated him was later when all 50 clients were there and all the binders were full, he realized the collective power because he would be like, oh, client number one asked a question that client 27, we dealt with that last year. And he was like, wouldn't it be interesting if I could put these people, if, if they could understand the collective, like they're, they're, they're in a community, they're in a private club. And so then he started doing things like that, where he would get people together and they would, they would vet you know, a private investment or they would vet a nonprofit donation. Like once a quarter, he started bringing nonprofits from the community in like three and they would all present and then they would go away and they would collectively decide. And then he started really tying together. In fact, he had a, um, remember uh, Sherlock Holmes with all the, like on the walls, he's trying to make the connections between all the pieces of um, evidence. He had that, like client number one mentioned this, He'd call client 27 and say, hey, I got another client. I just want to get your permission. Would you be open to talking to them about how you handled that? Oh, great. Connecting them. And then he started charging a retainer. He was like, look, it's not just to belong to this group. It's $25,000 or $10,000 or $8,000 a year. And your taxes are part of it. Like, yeah, sure. That stuff, that, like, that's just table stakes. Right. But now I've started making all these connections. And then that became the most valuable part of his whole business, which I thought was amazing. And then, of course, all I think about is like, think about all the content, all the, the intellectual property, all the knowledge that's being built up institutionally at that point. Well, if it's institutional IP, why is it buried in your head? <laughs> right. And now I can start sharing that and, and, and not only Anyway, so that, that's, I mean, I get so fired up about this stuff. It's just, there's endless opportunities for people as talented and as highly thought of and trusted and respected as a CPA. Yes, with so, like a never-ending depth of valuable knowledge that can be boxed up and put a bow on it in any manner, any different kind of way. You're only limited by your imagination in terms of how you want to put in a box your expertise, your knowledge, your intellectual property, because what you're doing is super novel. There's something that wasn't on my list of questions that I want to ask you about because it's, it just keeps coming off the page. And that is that there's a certain level of vulnerability that you present with in this work, which is sort of uh, orthogonal to how a traditional male CFP, if we're being stereotypical, might present what that like is that intentional is that just who you are is that like have you become more open and like dare i say vulnerable in this process like can you just talk about being vulnerable and how that works for you in what you're doing i love the way the reason i pause is because i get 
to be honest, I get slightly um, emotional about that idea because I just think of it as being human. And, and I think we have, and I'm just thinking of your listeners, right? Like I know you put on that little thing, that little costume and the little hat and you got to go to work and pretend like you know everything. And, and if you have any doubts or worries, you may go home and talk to your spouse or partner about it, but probably not. And maybe if you have a therapist, you, you go to the therapist and you say, gosh, everybody thinks I know everything and I'm so worried about it. And I'm so stressed. And you just keep hiding and hiding and hiding. And I don't know why, but I am not good at that. So it wasn't that I was doing anything else intentionally. If I was good at it, I would have done it. It would have been a better decision, maybe. I would, it certainly would have been safer. Would it have, though? Well, I don't know if it would have been better or, or more successful or any of those words, but I know it probably would have been safer, right? Like publicly safer. It would have felt safer. Or at least at least felt, it would have felt more normal. Yeah. Like I wonder all the I, I You have no idea how many times I'd go home. My wife and I would have this conversation, maybe even a heated debate about something, some people call those arguments, about something around money. And she would say, is this going to be in the New York Times? And I would say, you'll have to wait till, you'll have to wait till Thursday to find out. Oh, God. And I would write something or say something and just say, gosh, why can't I just keep, like, why can't I just keep my mouth shut? So all I'm suggesting is the water's fine. And it's really, really weird when you're just human and honest, I mean, we all know this. We're sick of the game. Like we all, privately, we're all sick of this like mimetic desire show that we all have to put on in public. What if you just said, gosh, I don't know, Geraldine. That's a really good question. I don't know. Um, but I know how to figure this out. Like I finally figured out for financial advisors, and I think this is true for CPAs. You are helping people navigate a complex adaptive system. People and their money, and even the tax code, like it's a complex adaptive system. And the only way to navigate a complex adaptive system, the only way is to solve, this is right out of the literature, right? Solve for the next local optimum and then reset. So this false narrative we have about being certain and about planning and about projections. They're all guesses. And so you're much closer to a guide in a changing landscape. Like the weather rolls in and you say, oh gosh, I looked at the forecast this morning. It didn't look like this. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I've got you, right? Like I've been in the situation before where I didn't know what was gonna happen and I know how to handle not knowing what's gonna happen. You're much closer to that guide than you are to a defender of a map. Like, no, it's always been this way and it's, and I think if we just take that off a bit and are like, I got you, like, let me give you an example. We're recording this, whatever, a day after an invasion, a war starts in Europe. And I'm watching on Twitter financial types posting things about the long term, you know, about don't miss the 10 best days in the stock market, about, about, historical events and how it would be stupid to sell. And I'm like, it, it's, it's a war. And is that how we act when we're like being human? No, how we act is say, Mr. And Mrs. Client, thanks for calling. If you're nervous, I am too. Like, I don't know. Like I'm watching the news. I get scared too. So can we just hear one another for a minute? And now and in a minute, we'll back up to like what it actually means for you. But I, first, I just like, I always say first a hug, right? Then the lectures and facts. <laughs> and so that's to me, yes. the I hope that answers yeah. your question. I, I don't know. I don't know why. It's, something's broken. But I, I think to me, I get emotional about it because when we give each other permission to be human, amazing things happen, turns out. Strange. Yeah. Let's come back to being human yeah. instead of the suit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So I'm imagining our listeners who are out there perhaps feeling a degree of uncertainty and also thinking there are better ways for me to do what I do, better ways for me to work with my clients, better ways to share the knowledge, the expertise that I have to serve my clients, to further enable what they want in their lives, right? Back to your 
Michael Bungay Steiner's questions of, you know, what else, what else, what else, why? Like, really, why does this matter to you? So if we have listeners who are in the audience who are thinking, I would love to go out on this path. I need a nudge out of the nest. I'm a linear thinker. I don't draw. But I have a creative streak. And they want to cultivate it. What would you say to them? I would first say, like, you're not alone. Really. And, and I, I get this pri- privately, like psst, at the conferences, come here, come here. or like a DM or a secret message or a phone. Can I just talk to you on the phone? <laughs> ten, I don't know what it is. It's not. It's not ten times a day. Ten times a week, right? Like almost every day. And I think what that is is there's just this. There's still this little spark, and we've done our best to cram it down, starting in first grade. There's still this little spark, and you recognize it when you see you know, Michael Jordan's The Last Dance, or when you see Go to an Amazing Play, or you re- the feeling we have, I call it the unspeakable thing, is like this stirring, like, I want to do something different. You know, you may be 48 asking yourself, is this all there is? You know, like, if you're in any of those spots, or brand new to being a CPA, and you're like, this is not what I signed up for. I had a dream or a vision of what I wanted to do, and it's being beaten out of me, Right. If you're feeling any of those things, you're not alone. And and the way to start, I call it I call it dancing with dragons. Like the way to start is instead of pressing that feeling down, you don't have to be heroic. It doesn't mean quit your job. Like just dance with it a little bit. Like maybe just write it down. That like be first danced up. Like, huh. And you may not even, it may still be unspeakable. Maybe it's just like, I know I want to do this a little different. I don't want to be caught in this hourly billing treadmill, for instance. I don't want to be, why do I want to be a senior partner when I look at all the senior partners and they're all miserable? Like, like I, whatever, those are all stories I've heard. So when you feel that, maybe you just write it down and give yourself permission to go, I don't know what it looks like. Here's the little secret, and I promise you this is true. I have spoken to, I could name you lists of people who have written some of the best books ever. I mean, James Clear, like the book sold, I think we're getting close to 10 million copies. He had no idea before. So the little secret is we're all just sort of bouncing around in the dark. I don't want to say faking it, but we're all... So here's the key. To me, the key is just try a little experiment. What is a... Jim Collins says, first bullets, then a cannonball. I think think of them as just little bets. And I think I want to do this. The little secret is you think that the person who you're like, oh, that per- I want to do something like that person. You think that person knew at the beginning that it, that was going to happen. They didn't. So they're just like you. So you say, I think I want to do this. Well, you try it. And I always, I always try to make it a micro action. Like what's the smallest experiment I can run? I'm going to call my friend and ask them what they think. I'm going to listen to that podcast. I'm going to read that book. Now, don't give yourself too many places to hide, but... Research is a great place to hide. It's probably your favorite. Uh Research and spreadsheets. But try something and see how it interacts with the world. And then what you're looking for is just, I call it tailwind. Just a little tailwind. Right? And so that's what we're always placing bets. Look, the volume one worked. I could tell you 50 stories about things that didn't. And it's not that they didn't work. It's that they led to these other things. So long answer short, try. Just try little experiments. Interact with people. And then this is the last thing I'll say on this. I want you to think about the last time you saw someone fail in public. (laughs) Think about the last time you saw... Sorry to get emotional about this. I didn't expect that at all. Think about the last time you saw one of your kids fail in public. Think about the last time you saw an adult, a colleague fail in public. What did you think? Did you think like, what a knucklehead? How stupid? I'll never... No. I, I, first of all, I doubt you can even remember it. Second, you didn't think what a knucklehead, what a failure. You probably thought, oh my gosh, how brave for trying or how can I be helpful? So when we're thinking of other people trying things and failing, we extend them all this grace. And then when we think of ourselves failing, we extend no grace. And if we could just reverse that a little bit, like just realize like nobody, 
first of all, no one's watching. Like, that's the good news when you start down this path. <laughs> There's no audience. My mom and my sister. <laughs> they don't notice. Yeah, your writing, your writing is the worst <laughs> Yep. when no one's watching. It's perfect. Yep, no one there to read it. Yeah, and second, even if there was. Like, I, a few people read the work that I do now, and when we fail, I just get lovely notes from people like, hey, thanks for taking a shot of that, and, and God, it was really fun to watch you fix that. And, like, I, I don't... If I get any other notes, I don't see them. Yeah. Or I don't remember. Hey. So anyway, that's what I would do. Try an experiment. Give yourself the grace. Dance with dragons a bit. Like, because we need you. Like, that thing that you're feeling like you should do, we need it. And by we, I mean, I don't want to live in a world with a bunch of senior partners. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to live in a world with seven ties and they're all maroon. Like, like go, try. Yeah. That's what I'd say. And we do need you because I'm not a CPA. And I can tell you, my business owning friends, we need you. We need you to not, we need you to uncork your expertise. Stop stuffing it in a bottle and get it out there so that we understand this stuff because a lot of people are lost. Yeah, go ahead. I have to tell you, like, I hope everybody listening just heard that. That's what everyone says. Right? And yet, then we go do, it's the same in my industry, it's the same law, it's the same with PowerPoint presentations, right? We need them to be different. Yes, we desperately need them to be different. And you go to design one and you design it the same. Yes. So we're all waiting. <laughs> go tell the others. We are waiting. Yeah. That is wonderful. Carl Richards, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Cheers, Geraldine. That was really, really fun. Thank you. If you've been waiting, longing for permission to get your expertise and IP out into the world so that you can better serve your clients while also leaving a longer lasting impact, but you've just needed a safe place to run micro experiments, stop what you're doing and head over to shethinksbigcoaching.com to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position, price, and package your services with a heavy dollop of inspiration to bring your ideas to life. That URL again is shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.